welcome folks and fam of all walks and talks to the LP Podcast, Literature in Practice, brought to you by Unbound Ed. I'm your host and co-learner, Brandon White, inviting you to listen in as we take a look at texts and practices that encourage student instruction to become more grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful. What happens when classroom instruction is focused on building academic skills while at the same time teaching social justice? And what's to gain when students are exposed to teaching that is student-driven and community-centered, but it's also flexible, connected to other subjects, and deeply interactive? That's the work of author Lorena Escolto Herman, who joins me to discuss her book, Textured Teaching, a framework for culturally sustaining practices. This is The LP. Folks, we have an amazing guest. We have Ms. Lorena Escoto Herman. She is a Dominican American educator focused on anti racist and anti bias work in education. She earned her master's degree at Middlebury College's Bread Loaf School of English. She is a two time, that's right, two time nationally awarded educator whose work has been featured in newspapers and journals, including the New York Times. NCTE Journals, Ed Week, The National Writing Project, and Embracing Equity. She is the author of The Anti-Racist Teacher, Reading Instruction Workbook, and most recently, this gem right here, Texture Teaching, a Framework for Culturally Sustaining Practices. Lorena is dedicated to her roles as a wife and mommy. Without further ado, Senora Eman, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Whenever I hear that, I'm like, oh my goodness, I need a vacation. For real, for real. Yeah, you definitely been putting work out here. That's the work, right? Right. For real, for real. Yep, that is the definition. Mm -hmm. Um, I love your definition for the work, by the way. And we'll get into that a little bit uh, later. So before we really get started into digging into this book, we need to know what was your favorite text as a kid? as an adolescent and as an adult? That's so, you understand that you're asking me a rather impossible question. Facts. So, (laughs) goodness, as a kid, as a kid, I was an avid reader. Um, I used to read all the time, all the time. And then I immediately started writing. And so I used to write books. I used to write little um, stories, short stories. I would turn something that happened into like a very dramatic, fictional retelling um and so but you know what and I can't remember the name of it right now but there's this little girl who had photographic memory do you remember those books when you were a kid I don't I don't I'm sorry photographic memory and she would help to solve cases um and so I used to read those a lot I loved them um but then I went through a little bit of a silent period where I didn't write and I barely read. And this was primarily due to the intensity of school and just just, just school, to be quite honest. Like I just, I, I became disinterested in reading um, because of the way that I was experiencing literacy in school. And then I get to college and I find a moment where I'm like, let me just pick up a book again. And I had really forgotten the, how much I love to read. And uh, two books changed the game. So, so now we're moving into adolescence. Two books changed the game. Um, Sister Soldiers, No Disrespect. I don't know if you've ever heard of it or read it. 
It changed the game. I had never read a book like that. Yes, Cam Jansen. Um, I had never read a book like like Sister Soldier, any of her writing. And then also the autobiography of Malcolm X by Alex Haley, Alex Haley. And both of those books just, I mean, it was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I saw myself on the page. I, I felt affirmed. I also felt like so much was explained of the things that I thought and believed and experienced. Um, and so that's when I got back into reading and writing. So let's talk about your book real quick. Yeah. Um, there are some questions about uh, that I want to ask that explore the book's landscape, get some uh, get some folks to understand uh, what's it about and, and where you're going with the book. First question I want to ask to make it more obvious for the folks who haven't read the book or haven't gotten to know you yet. Can you describe how much code switching, code meshing or code neglecting went on in the writing of this book? So that's a good that's a really interesting question. Because when I've talked about the writing of this book, what I what I usually discuss is that audience mattered to me. So this is what I'll say. I tried very hard to be as authentic as possible. I wrote like I was writing to my friends. Um, the teaching profession, particularly English teachers, but or, or let me put it this way, literacy educators are, it's about like 80 something percent white women. And so I'm aware that this is the big, um, this is the majority of the audience, right? However, my editor, a black woman and I, we had a good conversation and I said, listen, I'm not writing for that audience. I understand that many of them are going to purchase this book and I want them to, I welcome them to, this work is for them as well. But this book is not for them. This book is not for, um, you know, this is not for convincing them of anything. Um, we're kind of, I'm past that personally and professionally. I am past 1965 and I am past 2020. We in 2022. Okay. <laughs> it is time to be doing this work. So I said to her, I said, I, I am going, you know, how can I write this book in a way where people don't feel disoriented, but they also fully understand that like we on a train and it's moving. If you just hopped on, welcome, you're late, but welcome. And there's people here too, right? So what I mean is that I, I, was, I wanted to be very careful to not write from the white gaze or for the white gaze. And so her and I worked a lot and eventually this is what we did. She said, I want you to think of three or four people that you're writing to, like, who is this book for? And so I, I ended up thinking of three or four, fr four friends of mine who are educators, who are in the classroom, who've been in the classroom for a long time, who I know do a lot of this already to make sure that I am not speaking in a way that it feels basic, right? That feels like oh, you're explaining things I already know. I really, I didn't want to do that. I did want to spend time at the beginning clarifying terms so that we're all on the same page when I, when I name things. Um, so you'll, and you'll know that from chapter one, but I did the best that I could to talk to someone as if it was you, Brandon, right? I'm assuming that you have a particular foundation, that you have been an educator in a classroom, so you have some knowledge of what it is, right? Um, and so, and that's what I did. I had pictures of them up too. And I was like, would, would this person need me to explain that? No. Okay, I'm talking to somebody else. I don't want to talk to them. Let me talk to him. So boom, you know, and so it was, I was less concerned about code switching or, 
or translanguaging. And I was just really concerned about, let me be authentic and speak to who I actually want to talk to, you know? You said you had pictures of the people that you had in mind while you were yes. writing? Yes, I'm a very visual person, right? Like I, I, I think very visually, um, or, or let me put it this way: in images, I often think in, in images. And so I was like, I need to see them. I need to remember. Yeah. It, it was also a form of accountability because in my writing space, it's like I got these four people looking at me. <laughs> it's like, right. okay, I'm do right by you. I wonder what would happen if teachers during PLCs, school board members during their sessions system leaders when making big decisions had pictures of their stakeholders right there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> People they knew they had to be accountable to in yeah. their community or the community they're supposed to be connected to, sure. to make the best choices around policies, practices, and right. procedures. But yeah. Or um, even just the names up, right. For, a, mm. for, for accountability, like, are you serving this person? Well, word. Cause one thing is being a, a keyboard warrior and typing all yeah. kinds of things, right? Or or saying all kinds of things when somebody's not around. But the other thing is to, to do that or say that or practice that in someone's face, in, in front of someone, you know? Facts, 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 facts. So as somebody is digging into this text that's been largely inspired by the faces on the wall that you have to, that are in your community, yeah. Um, what are three words or concepts that are routinely used in this text that are important for folks to soak in? Love is one. And I definitely defined that at the beginning. At least I tried to. Um, textured, obviously. And I'm trying to introduce that as a way to think of the complexities and the nuance of what happens in a classroom. But I'm going to turn it around on you. What are you yeah, nice, nice, nice boomerang. Nice boomerang. I see you, sis. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would say textured, yeah, for sure. I would also say uh, it, it was interesting reading the book where you were definitely like have your own framework, right? It's very mm -hmm. clear, but you found an awesome balance of like offering your distinctive framework, but still giving props to your, one of your senseis, Django Paris, oh, yeah. right? Oh yeah. And so I would say culturally sustaining pedagogy would be another. Yeah. And then I would say uh, centering slash decentering. Oh yeah, right? because yeah. you talk about centering a lot, centering of students, centering of of, of quality Amazing. instruction, uh -huh. but then you also talk about decentering a lot too, mm -hmm. um, in terms of what it means. Yeah. You're going to effectively center. You have to know how to effectively decenter some things too, right? Yeah. Um, so, right. The, those those would be my three. I, yeah. I would I would say. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So let's hop back into your book real quick. Yeah. Who do you believe will feel the most seen or heard through your text? Mm. I hope that the teachers who um, are currently discontent with, with classroom practices, who, who are like, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a different way. This didn't work for me as a student. I'm struggling through it as a teacher. I'm hopeful that those teachers will see themselves here, will see that there is out of the box approach that um, helping young people to understand and make meaning of the world around them in order to solve problems is a, an important part of teaching and can be a part of your practice. So I'm hopeful that those teachers, meaning myself, <laughs> are seen and heard by this book, yeah. No doubt, no doubt, no doubt. Um, 
and I don't, you know, even in the, even in this space of um, social justice based initiatives in education, I don't, I don't always read material that has that as a premier target. Maybe it's intended, but it doesn't always hit the core. Um, but in reading this book, it definitely uh, felt that way. You know, if nobody, you know, if you're like just stepping into this type of work and conversations about bias and justice and race and all of those things, then I, I think I would just explain that, um, you know, this book is, this book is meant to help you see how all of these ideas are not abstract. They're very concrete, can and should be brought into our classrooms. Um, a lot of people love to talk about Martin Luther King Jr. and how amazing he was and how his dream for all of us is you know, still un unreached. And one of the things that he talks about is the purpose of education and what it should be. And he says that it should be to help young people or to help the learner discern truth from lies, fact from fiction, and to make sense of what is around you in order to stay away from propaganda, right? And so immediately we have to ask ourselves, well, if we believe the things that he says, and we should, and if we believe that, you know, education should be about protecting people from propaganda by helping them to learn and understand truth, then we have to ask ourselves, how am I doing that through through my curriculum and through my practices. And so I'm hopeful that this book helps to answer that question. This book is, is meant to help us finally practice what we've been preaching, right? Like we've been talking a lot on social media, particularly since 2020, but definitely before that, if you're a person of color, we've been talking about this. So it's time that we start also walking in and practicing all of this specifically in our classroom so that we don't continue to have these quote unquote racial awakenings um, as if racism or bias have been sleeping. They've been hard at work <laughs> every day. Uh, and so we can't have any more other people sleeping because while people are sleeping, other people are dying. You know, I think what I did here was simply try to, in this book, was try to take that magic that we always see in each other's classrooms and break it down in a way so that we can all do it, so that we can all keep working for our kids, um, so that we can continue to organize them and just fight for that freedom that our communities need, you know? No doubt, no doubt. I wanna get a little deeper into not just uh, how your text is uh, built, but the things that are actually uh, in it. Um, I wanna, in reading it, I, I kind of, this pattern of folks, you know, just got further established, right? The folks like yourself, uh, Goldie Muhammad, Bettina Love, Chris Emden, uh, I kind of feel like y'all represent the next generation of like instructional thought leaders. Um, how would you describe the similarities and differences from those that came before y'all, like the Gloria Lads and Billings, right? Um, or or the, the Frayers or, um, the Kanjufus or the Hilliards or the Delpits and folks mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, first of all, that's amazing to be classified with this group, right? To, to be connected to their work. We're such a good time in, in educational publishing right now. There is such a richness to what's being put out. I didn't write this book by my lonesome in a room. It, it is in community. Dr. Gloria Latson-Billings is absolutely part of everything that I do. 
um, as, as she was foundational for culturally sustaining pedagogy. In fact, her chapter in that book is next level. Like I find myself going back to it all the time, just to, just to go back and, and get a whiff of her words, you know? Um, and so my work is built upon their work. It is not, it is not even a critique of any of their work, but, uh, you know what, let's call this a refrigerator. It's like, let me take a couple of condiments from Dr. Billings. Let me take a, you know this side from from CSP. Let me take this from Dr. Gay's work. Let me look at you know Freire's ideas of of oppression and freedom and this non banking method of education. Let me look at the way that Delpit frames her words and makes arguments. Um, you know, and so yeah, it's not. I have not. Uh, shun them. I have not pushed them aside. I don't even know that I can say similarities or differences. I think that it is all, it's all woven, right? Like it's textured. Hey, <laughs> it's textured in that oh, way. No. That's all part of the fabric. I, I don't even know that I want to distill and pull away because I, I want it to be understood that this book and this framework come from right, birthed from their work as well. Can you tell us about the role mentorship and intergenerational support played uh, plays in textured teaching um, in general? I mean, it's played in my academic formation. Like I met Dr. Paris. So for the record, I have not met Dr. Aileen. Okay. Can't wait to meet him. But Dr. Paris originally came up with CSP and kind of coined the term in 2012. And at that point, I was a graduate student and uh, he was a he was co-directing that program that I was at. And um, I was one of the few students of color in that program. And so, you know, naturally, he was he was making sure to connect with all of us and build community for all of us. And so I got to not only watch him lead in an academic space that was in every way white and wanted to keep its whiteness. Um, and then also experience his mentorship of me. So I got to both watch him and experience him, if that makes any sense. And yeah. so I remember there was this one conversation. There was this one conversation. This was my first time back in school since college. And uh, I was feeling so insecure. I was like, yo, really? Like, I'm about to be in this program. And I had just submitted an essay and I, I got this, I got like an A on it. And I was like, and I was sitting there with him like, yeah, I just, I feel like this teacher just gave it to me because maybe he felt bad for me. Like, I, I just don't think this is really worth an A. And he stopped, we were walking actually, not, not sitting down, we were walking. He stopped, he was like, are you smart? And I was like, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> he was like, what makes you think you did not actually write an A paper? And I was like, I don't know. It's been a long time since I wrote it. You know, I was just, I was drowning in my, in my academic insecurity. And he said, absolutely not. This is a real thing. Students of color feel like he just brought facts to the table and, and showed me like, A, you're not alone. B, this is common. C, you deserve that A because you wrote that paper. Nobody else did. And I was like, you're right. <laughs> I'm going to own this, you know? And that, that was like one of the first game changes for me in education, because I was like, wait a minute, not only are all these things true, but look at how he, like the power that he just had in that interaction. And I was like, that's what I need to do for my students, you know? So that's what I mean. I was both receiving mentorship, but I was also taking notes like, okay, 
okay, I see how you roll. That was the first kind of um, interaction with him that I was like, this dude is legit. <laughs> and then I, I would listen to him as he would talk and present about CSP. And I was like, this makes so much sense to me. This, this is exactly what I want to do. This is what I need to consider in my own approach. And so I got to be there and watch CSP kind of transform. And then it, it became this bigger thing later when him and, and Dr. Aleem were like, okay, let's really expand this and let's put together this book of, of what it looks like in action. Um, and so that's how we get to texture teaching later. Right, like having this mentorship, having this relationship with Paris, with Dr. Paris, um, was kind of foundational because I, I left that program with a confidence and a clarity of what I'm supposed to be doing, what I'm called to be doing, um, a confidence to say, oh, I didn't do that well, let's go try that again. A confidence in, let me look at my colleagues. What, what are my peers doing that works? What is doing, what are they doing that doesn't work? How can I learn and how can I build this PLC, even if they don't want to be a part of it, right? Um, and then with Dr. Kirkland, I mean, if anybody's ever been in a class with him or you've heard him speak, then you understand that the man commands a room. Like he really has a powerful voice, but but it's also in what he says. And so in being in his class, I was like, I can just really be my unapologetic self when I'm a teacher. And he modeled what it was like to say, yeah, there's there's Chaucer and there's all these quote unquote classical and ancient texts, but there's also like Nicki Minaj and there's also Bone Thugs in Harmony and we can study them um, in their own merit, like for their own literary benefits to students. Um, and I also learned a lot from some other folks, particularly um, Dr. Paris's wife. So she also, people don't necessarily know this, but she also, she's a writer and she teaches fiction. And so she taught at that program and I took her fiction writing class. And I had never been in a class where someone unapologetically simply taught like non-white texts. She didn't even, there was no preface. There was no preface. <laughs> right, right, right. So, you know, in this class, she was just like, these are the books we're looking at. And I didn't even notice it. I didn't mm. even notice it until like halfway through the course when I was like, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> Look at all these authors, you know? And I was just like, this is amazing because it's been so empowering to read all of these high quality pieces and to really sit here and get into intellectual conversation and, and not have to be like, well, what's the bias here? I mean, there's bias everywhere, but not having to be focused on how can I critique this white author as part of my intellectual process, like to really just be free from that and be like, oh yeah, this was a, a crappy moment that clearly is his bias as a man, but like it actually doesn't overtake this story, you know? Anyway. Yeah. Well, no so doubt. piece is critical to experience and it becomes the foundation for how I get to the point of I'm out here practicing my own approach, you know? No doubt. No doubt. Speaking of curriculum, um, you talk a lot about the idea of flexibility in the text uh, text teaching framework, right? Mm -hmm. How do you offer this idea to someone being told they have to integrate a curriculum with quote unquote fidelity and or at a quote unquote impatient speed? Yeah, that's a really important question. And I tried to tackle some of that in there by saying that 
this began. I started texture teaching in one of the most oppressive contexts I had taught in. Um, I was told what books I was teaching. I was told almost even in what order I was teaching them. I was told what assessments. I was given even objectives that I had to put on the board. So talk about inflexible, right? And it was in that setting that I said, how can I infuse both myself and my students' texture into what it is that I'm supposed to be doing? Um, and so I cannot give a prescription to a teacher, do this. I don't know because I don't know you, I don't know your students. So I don't want to fall into that, uh, you know, I don't want to fall into that type of conversation of, of what to do and how to do it. This is something that the teacher has to wisely um, implement in their own setting, considering all those factors I just mentioned. Who are you? What's your positionality? What is happening in this school? But I find that there are still ways. We find ways. We bend curriculum often, even in very inflexible situations, in ways that we might not think is bending. I'll, for example, we have a curriculum and we are told what to do and how to do it. But I decided that I'm really tired today. And so we're actually going to watch a clip. And, I, and that's not part of the curriculum, but we're going to watch a clip and I'm going to find a way to tie it. And it's whatever thing, because I'm exhausted and they're clearly exhausted. And I found a way to find a sliver of a moment. And that's what I did with it. Now, I'm not saying rest. I'm not saying don't rest with your kids and don't do stuff that is also like free from having to process. That's important. But just like that, we find moments and there are gaps in our days. I mean, we're with kids 180 days. You're telling me you can't take 10 days spread out throughout those 180 to infuse conversations about justice in ways that are relatable to them and that help them to find meaning and make meaning in the world around them. I was, I, I remember listening to a teacher talk about how a kid came to class and said, hey, you know, we're doing all of this in here, but I go to TikTok and they're talking about colonialism, gentrification, redlining, social justice. Like, is that where I'm supposed to learn about those things? Or like, why don't we learn about any of that in class? And we could continue to do that. We could continue to rest on TikTok and Instagram and Twitter when our students can just continue to go there and learn. I mean, that might be people's approach. It's not my approach. I'd rather you not be a doctor based off of what you learned on Twitter. I'd rather that you not talk about uh, anti-colonialism out in the streets and you don't necessarily have the historical context or a really holistic understanding because what you did was watch two TikToks on it, right? So, you know, I, I, I think that we have to find a way in those 180 days to say, by the way, <laughs> this is how this curriculum is gonna help you make sense of the world around you as it is happening right now. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the point around, you're not doing it on time or <laughs> with, with quote unquote fidelity uh, oftentimes anyway, right? And I, that's something I can personally attest to. When the moment where you said like, talked about the idea of like, you know what? Kids are tired. I'm tired. We're 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 deviating from this for a second. Like I know I've done that, and also I know I've engaged with the curriculum in a way that dilutes it. I know I've done that too, and I've exercised that malpractice as well. So we can change it when we're tired. We can change it when we don't believe kids can do it. We can change it when we don't believe in ourselves and our instructional prowess, or don't develop it. But we. The, the challenge of believing it to actually improve for kids 
mm-hmm. um, isn't as easy, interestingly enough, sometimes. Um, let, me, let me add something else, because what you just said is also important, right? Like, two thoughts. One, teach it with fidelity. Fidelity to whom? Mm-hmm. Am I supposed to be very loyal to Pearson? Mm-hmm. Am I supposed to be very loyal to this, whatever company wrote this curriculum? Or is my loyalty supposed to be to these students in this community? Now, I understand that you might get fired for that. So I'm not calling anybody to get fired. Okay, we don't need martyrs. We need teachers. Uh, so, so I understand. But I think that those are some of the questions that we don't often grapple with, right? And we just kind of follow what the instructions are for a number of different justifiable reasons. And I think that sometimes we can push back and we don't know we can't. So that's the first thought. And then the other thing is, you know, my advice is often to teachers, cause, cause I'll get this. Like I definitely, this question I've gotten it before, like, oh, but we have a curriculum and we don't have time. How am I supposed to do this? Find the areas that are gray areas, right? You might be told what books to teach, but you have not necessarily, maybe you haven't been told how to teach it. Maybe you haven't been told what supplements you can use. Maybe you've been told all that, but you haven't been told in the time frame. Maybe you can do all of that in a week and then you have a free week, right? So like figure out what the loophole is in your system because it's different everywhere. And that is how you, you bring it in. No doubt. And, and hearing you say that, um, it, it made me think of the critical difference between teaching a curriculum with fidelity, quote unquote, right? Versus using a curriculum to teach your students with integrity, (laughs) right? Um, And you just named some really practical approaches on uh, how to to do that. I I, I wanna ask you a bit about the process of decentering oneself, right? because you talk about that a, 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 a significant amount in the book and in moments where you aren't explicitly talking about it, you're definitely implying yeah. uh, that is necessary <laughs> for certain uh, things that uh, take place uh, within the text you're teaching uh, framework. Can you talk a bit about how you decentered yourself and how that impacted your ability to lead educators and deliver instruction? Yeah. That's so hard. <laughs> Decentering ourselves is so hard because for most of us that are teachers, most, not all, but most of our teachers became teachers because school really worked for us. And we had that great teacher that we loved. And, you know, she usually said, oh, you're so great. And so, you know, we become teachers. Um, so I can understand how what I am saying here and others who are saying this feels like we're reinventing the wheel and we're destroying your entire conception of what it is to teach. However, I think that um, it can be done. When we think about really good experiences in our lives, often there isn't necessarily someone pointing things out, right? Like whether it's a tour of a new country, whether you, you know, did something, I mean, you built a something, right? Like a craft. You didn't necessarily have someone saying, do this, I'll take this next step put the piece of tape here, look at this thing. I'm going to walk you through the, right? Like often it's because you had this experience of growth and you owned the thing you were doing. And so the same applies to education. Now I am not suggesting that teachers step back and chaos ensues, right? Cause that's often the pushback. It's like, how will I have control? I'm not saying that. Also we are, we, this is our job. <laughs> this is our job. And most if not all of us are prepared Um, whether it's through certification and our degrees and our life experiences, right? So like we're still somewhat of the expert in that room. 
And our job is to create a learning experience. But our job is not to do the learning. That's the difference. That's where we get, I think, that's that's that gray area. And a lot of us fall on that line of doing the learning. Like if I'm doing most of the work, this is not working. This is not necessarily them learning. That's you working. So it's a very fine line. And it also depends on the subject, right? Like math teachers have a different process. Science teachers have to do a lot of modeling. I'm thinking of like labs and things like that and explaining processes. So this is different everywhere. But my point is that there has to be a release. There has to be a process where, you know, maybe I've modeled or maybe I've given some instructions and I'm there along the way, but I'm not necessarily pointing everything out. One of the ways, one of the analogies that I've used before is um, for teachers to think of themselves or English teachers, and for the for this moment, think of yourselves as like walking kids through a forest. That's what you're doing when you're reading a book with them. You have a vision of what you're going to use this forest for. I want to point out all of the nests and all of the birds. That's what I want to do. That's the goal. Great. We're walking together and I'm saying, look at this tree. Look at the nest up there. Do you see the birds? Great. Nothing stops them, however, from noticing the squirrels, from looking at the fox, from noticing all the plants and the flowers and the bees in the air, right? And like, oh, look, a bear. Oftentimes we do that though. We'll be like, no, don't look at that. Don't look at the bear. Don't look at the squirrels. We're focusing on this. That lack of flexibility does not allow for that student autonomy and their own growth, right? Like they might notice the, the birds and the nest and the trees and everything on the ground. Our job is to point some things out, but also like freely walk with them. And if we got to stop and we're not looking at that, and right now we're going to look at this baby fox, like, okay, like let's spend some time there and let's make sense of that. So back to teaching, <laughs> that means this. Um, you know, what that means is that our job is kind of to guide them and to walk with them. And in those ways, we do decenter ourselves because one of them might be the ones that stop and pause and show us something. And now you're the teacher and you can be sure that everybody is going to learn a whole lot when a peer gets up and does some of that teaching. And so that's why I talk about it so much. Like I ended up realizing how much more they were learning that was like surrounding curriculum versus how much they learned when it was just me really focused narrowly on my specific content goals, you know? Like there is so much that can happen. There's this extracurricular learning that can actually take place, you know, in the process. How do you feel like your text can help support folks who want to make instruction more grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful? One of the reasons why I talk about this, um, this whole thing is, is one of the things I mentioned earlier, like sometimes we'll see a teacher doing really well in her classroom or, you know, he really connects very well with students and gets them to do the work, whatever that is. Right. And so we relegate that to like, oh, you know, Brandon just has that magic in there as if it is not method, as if it is not thoughtful application of strategies. Um, and he might, and, and Brandon, you might have some magic, okay? But there's also the hard work. And so my intention with Texture Teaching is to say the success that I've had with students was not simply magic. It was also method. And here it is, and you can do it too. Um, and, and so 
that's how we get to this weaving, to this textured concept. And so I think what I'll, I'll do is just read this. When that woven fabric that my aunt was talking about is finished, it might look an impossible feat or even magic. Beholders are left impressed by the way the colors and the patterns come together. They marvel at the weaver and are in awe of their work. It's important to know it's not magic though. There isn't anything mysterious about how it all came together. It took time, patience, creativity, and dedication. Fighting for justice and equity in education requires commitment and that same persistence. And it's time that we all got to work. Folks, Senora Herman, <laughs> thank you so much, sis, um, for indulging me in this conversation, uh, for uh, exposing folks to this uh, awesome book, Texture Teaching. Thanks for having me. And I hope that, that this conversation will be useful for other people who are listening. If you'd like to get more info on this episode's author, the featured text, and how you can apply your newly acquired knowledge within your profession, we got you. Check us out on the LP website at unbounded.org forward slash LP. You can also check us out on social media at unboundedu. This is Brandon White. Thanks for listening to the LP. Literature in Practice, where we take a look at texts and practices that encourage a student instruction to become more grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful. Peace and progress. <laughs>